How are we doing, guys? We're doing great? It is so great to be at Salt with you guys. And whether this is your first time, your hundredth time, I hope it's not your hundredth time. I've been here for a long time, like Van Wildering it. But uh, y'all don't know that movie. Wow, I'm old. All right, cool. And whether it's, you know, you've been here for a bunch of times, it's your first time, or you just wandered in because you were following some girl here, like, we're glad you're here, all right? We're excited that you're here, and we, we, we believe that God has something in store for you. And we want you to know something that you are loved. And, and you mean something here. You matter here. Even though we may not know you yet, we do want to know you. And my name's Ernie. I'm the church planning candidate for the SALT Network. If you don't know what that is, you're at SALT Company. It's the college ministry of Candeo Church, which is a part of a network of churches called the SALT Network, which has a desire to plant churches on college campuses because we really love college students and we really feel like God is calling us to make a difference in that arena. And so we, so I'm a part of that and I'll be planning a church in 2021. We'll talk about that sometime later, but I'm excited to be here with you tonight. I want to introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I got a picture of my family up here. Can we throw that up there? Yeah, all right. That Babelicious up there, that's my wife. She belongs to me. All right, she's mine. Okay, guys? All right, looky but no touchy. She's mine, all right? And she is an incredible person. Like, people meet us, and they're like, Ernie's cool, but Laura, oh my gosh, she's amazing. Like, how did he do that? And I'm like, I know, you're right, isn't that awesome? Like, I did, I did that. Listen, guys, I'm gonna tell you how you can marry above your weight class. You ready? This is how you do it, okay? You find a girl that is incredible, that has one flaw, all right? And that flaw is she has poor judgment in men, and you exploit that. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. That is exactly what happened. There is no lie. I say it all the time because it's true. It happened, all right? And so that's my wife. She's incredible. Uh, we, she loves college students, been involved in college ministry. We went to LSU together, graduated, and been in Texas for the last six years. And this is my son, Jackson. He's six years old. Give you a little idea about who he is. Is He had his first football practice a couple weeks ago, and they were practicing handoffs, you know, and you do this to get the handoff, right? And my son is like, well, he, he, it's his turn to get the ball, and he just starts going, jump, 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 I'm Pac-Man. And I'm like, I laughed, my wife didn't, the coach didn't, I thought it was funny, it wasn't a good moment. And then there's, there's Ella right there, she's our three-year-old, she's boss lady, all right? Like, if you, we went to the park on Monday, she's got one guy just carrying around a log that she wants to bring home in this park. Somebody else is carrying flowers, and she's being carried by a third person, and she's just telling people, it's like, whatever, that's what she is. And then there's Gracie right there. She's our, our six months old. She's bigger than that now, but um, she is cute, makes all these little funny noises. She growls a lot. It's, it's an interesting thing. If you want to hear those noises, just follow my wife's Instagram. She posts it all the time. I laugh about it all the time. But we are excited to be here, and we're excited to be here from Texas uh, we're not Texans, so you won't be hearing me go bragging about Texas anytime soon. It's just a place that we were for a while, and God did a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, but I remember when I was in Texas, a friend of mine told me a story about his dad growing up with his dad, so his grandpa, he's telling a story about his grandpa, and uh, how he grew up, and he grew up in this incredibly impoverished area, right? He, was, he, was, he grew up in this incredibly impoverished area. He grew up in a, a time where he was a farmer, and they didn't have a lot, and, and they were always farming, and whatever they could get money, they would buy more and more land, but it always ended up in a place where they just could never get out of debt, they could never get underneath what was happening there, and when his grandfather died, uh, they had around 500 acres, but not much else. Like, he would tell us stories about how he didn't have shoes, he had holes in his shoes, or that, um, you know, sometimes he had to go without meals, and then a couple of years after his grandfather passed away, it, it, it came to, they found out that they had oil underneath the land that they had owned. I mean, it just completely changed their life. It was just this incredible like, abundance of riches right underneath their feet that they didn't even know there. And the irony of this is, for years and years and years, 
you know, this man was telling me, as he can remember not having shoes for his feet, he's like, oh, the whole time I was sitting underneath this great wealth that was right here. I didn't know how to get to it. I didn't know how to dig down into it. But it was there, and it could have changed our life completely even before this moment. You know, I think back to his story, how he was telling me about that, which is pretty incredible. It's kind of the dream, like, yeah, please find oil underneath my property. Yes, please. I would like that. Mm, please, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... But I think it parallels our story in a lot of ways, every single one of us in this room. Not from a point of whether you grew up on a farm, I don't know where you grew up in, you know, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know. It, maybe it's common in Iowa, I've heard. Um, or, if, or where you were financially. But I think our story mirrors his story in a lot of ways that we grew up in a place, we're in a place where we are not financially bankrupt, but we are spiritually bankrupt. That we're in a place of complete poverty and complete need and there's this thing that is available to us that's right underneath our nose that is of abundant riches. And if we knew how to dig into it, it would change our life completely. If we would give it the value of what it was, it would change everything about our lives. Guys, we're gonna be looking at this every time you come in here. We're gonna be digging into the word of God because it is an abundance of riches. And tonight, we're gonna to be starting a series called Foundations. And we're calling it Foundations because it's gonna be four weeks about things that we think that are foundational, having a healthy relationship with Christ. And the first one we're gonna be talking about is our relationship with the word of God. And I think it's the most important relationship we could talk about having with something is the word of God. See, because as a Christian, like you cannot grow to maturity without reading the word of God. You can become a Christian without reading the Bible. You could hear the gospel, respond, and die and go to heaven. But you can't grow in maturity. And here's the thing that saddens me is that there's so many of us in this room that will live our entire lives and be spiritual infants and miss out the incredible joy and riches that this word presents to us because we won't dig into it. That there's some of us in this room right now that are completely unsatisfied with our walk in Christ and feel no intimacy to him. And I wanna pitch it to you that the problem is not Jesus, but it's the amount of intimacy and time you're giving Jesus by diving into his word. That maybe that's the issue. So we're gonna be looking at 2 Timothy 3. As you flip there, I wanna give you some context. We're gonna be camping out on verses 14 and 16. But before we do that, can I pray for us? I'm gonna do it. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to open your word, to make much of you, Lord. I just ask that you would peel back the walls that we put up against you, that we say, no, we don't want you to go into these rooms, we don't want you to go in these places, you want you to deal with this part of me, uh, Lord, but that you would peel back those areas and say, I'm gonna deal with that area of your life. I'm gonna speak into that moment tonight. And so, God, as we look at your word and we talk about the importance of diving into your word, uh, God, I just ask that you bring conviction on our heart, uh, not guilt, but, but that we would see the riches of what it is and want to respond, not as something hypothetical, like, man, I should work out, or I should eat more kale, but that, God, that, that, that um, it would be a conviction of this is where the, my best life is found, and this is where the things that I need the most are found, and this is where I need to go, and it would be, be something like breathing, like we just have to do it. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you, amen. Okay, so 2 Timothy chapter three, you can flip there. 
And as we go there, uh, you can notice, I want to give you a little bit of context. This is Paul writing to a guy named Timothy. Timothy was the disciple of Paul. And uh, it's at a moment in, in Paul's life where he's about to die. He's kind of giving a last words to a friend, to someone he's loved and he's cared about a lot. And in chapter three, we're going to start there in verses one through four. And you're going to see to Paul describing to Timothy, this is the kind of culture that he's in. He says, but now this, hard times will come at the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, uh, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That sounds really positive, right? Definitely doesn't. But let me ask you a question. Does that not sound a lot like your college campus? Right? Don't you see a lot of these things in your world? Like when you, I don't know if you have Twitter, but when you flip on Twitter, when you see what's trending, isn't it kind of just, you're just in despair about what you read? Right? When you see the news, it just like, it looks like the world's just going nuclear and we're just going to fall apart at any moment. And what the, the, the culture that he's describing here is, is, is the same thing. See, I think the culture we live in isn't that much different than the culture that Timothy and Paul lived in. And Paul continues in verse five and he starts talking about not only these people that are running as fast as they can away from God, but he says, holding to the form of godliness, they're talking about a different group of people that are very similar, but denying its power, avoiding, avoid these people. Verse seven, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's saying to Timothy, hey, also in this time, not only are people just running to sin, but there's people that are really, they seem to look really good and they seem to look really godly, but they're not, all right? They know a lot of things, they're really good at the Sunday school answers, but they have no relationship with Jesus, no connection with Jesus. They don't know him. Timothy, don't trust these people. Some of you in this room, this is you. You have all of the Sunday school answers. You went through the Bible drill. You went through Awana circles, all these other things like this, and you can give all the answers, but you live a double life. The way you are in front of church and the way you are when you're by yourself around other people, you are a completely different person. And it's clear. And I believe what, what Paul would say to you is to turn from that. But what he's saying to Timothy, he said, don't entrust yourself to these kind of people. Don't put them in a position of leadership. Don't follow their example of life. This isn't the way that you would want people that are underneath your leadership to go or to follow. And then he goes to 14. We're kind of chopping through this. And this is where I came out, 14, all right, through 17. It says this, but as for you, this is Paul talking to Timothy. As for you, this is how everybody else is living. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from the infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through the faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling Timothy to do is to say, it's very simple to say this, hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the word of God. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have already learned. Paul is telling Timothy to hold fast to the word of God, not to follow the whims of his culture. You see the two different pictures of here, of verses one through seven, of all these people that are going after these different things. He's like, this is a direction you can go. This is a way you can go. You can go chasing after culture and the way, and what people tell you is important. Keep going and doing those things. But Paul's saying, don't do that. Stick with what you have learned in the scriptures, what God has taught you, what you know to be true. And guys, when you start chasing culture, by the way, that is a bad way to be because culture changes all of the time, right? What was good 10 years ago is bad now. 
Let me just give you an example. Fashion, all right? I see girls now, college girls, wearing mom jeans with the front tuck, okay? All right, I remember mom jeans like in the 80s. I'm like, mom, do not wear those. That's embarrassing, all right? I don't really remember the 80s, but whatever. If I did, I would. And then, and then I remember the front tuck, like guys doing that when I was in high school, but now it's girls with the jeans, no belt, front tuck. Things change. It's different, right? What about the office? Any of my office fans in here? I love the office. Yeah. All right, it's great. It, my wife calls it my, uh, my comfort blanket. She's like... Whenever, you just, whenever you're feeling bad, you just watch the I was like, yeah, it's awesome. It's hilarious. And I remember that show coming out. It was kind of controversial. There were some things about it, and there were some people approving, and there was some like, man, this is just really kind of far out there in some ways. And now you look back at it, there's people now complaining because it's not PC enough. In the 50s, it was encouraged that people should be, continue to stay married. And a lot of people did. They didn't stay in love in their marriage, but they were, they were encouraged to stay in marriage. Now we throw divorce parties. Culture changes. If you're going to chase after the opinions and the desires of people, you're going to be an unsteady person. You're going to be a person of contradiction because in one part of your life, you're going to say something, and in the next part of life, you're going to say something different. It's no way to live your life. And Paul's telling Timothy to hold fast to the word because of the history that he has with the word. Look what he says, all right, in 14 and 15. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this to Timothy. Listen to me, Timothy. Don't doubt in the dark what you saw so clearly in the light. Timothy, I know you're in a world right now where everything seems like it's crazy. Timothy, I know you're in a place right now where following Jesus is countercultural. It's not smiled upon. It's not a place that's encouraged in a lot of ways. But Timothy, you have seen God's hand work in your life over time and time again. You have seen his faithfulness. Don't let your situation dictate what you know to be true. Don't doubt in the dark, which you saw so clearly in the light. Some of you need to hear that because you're hitting philosophy classes and religion classes for the first time. And if you and I is any, anything like the universities I've been around, it's like you have someone teaching you the Bible that doesn't even believe in this thing. And their whole goal, it's like, why did you even study it? Their whole goal is to just disprove it and make you feel silly for believing it. And I know that'd be true because when I was at LSU as a student, I was a religion minor. And I did it not because I thought LSU was a great seminary of great Christian beliefs, but I was like, I want to learn what other religions believe so I can have good, intelligent conversations with them. I knew I wanted to go into ministry. I'm like, I want to do that. And then I had to take some Christian, like, class on Christianity, and I saw how bad they hacked it up. I was like, well, I wonder if I got the Islam and Hinduism, what they actually believe, because this is not even close to what I believe. It's strange. And when you hear those things, you don't need to be shaken. Don't doubt in the dark what you saw so clearly in the light. Now, I'm aware of something that, that some of you in this room, you have no history with the word of God. You would be like, Ernie, I'm not Timothy. I don't have this rich history of knowing God. I don't even know God. I'm just kind of chilling here and kind of figuring this out, like what is this looking like? Uh, my encouragement to you is the same as I'm gonna encourage everybody else is to dive into this word. And I'm gonna encourage you to do it though with a friend that knows this word. That, you, that re, you respect them. You look at them, you go, yeah, the way they follow Jesus seems like they're actually following Jesus. I wanna know what it is. Okay, don't go diving into it by yourself, okay? 
If you want to learn to fly a plane, you would never, ever, ever just hop in a plane like, let's go, Leroy Jenkins. And it's like, no, you would crash. You would be dead. You would be done, all right? Like, well, there's that dead dumb guy, all right? No. You would get somebody that knew how to fly a plane, and you'd have them give you lessons and walk you through how to fly the plane, and you'd fly with them. Why would you ever, ever just go, I'm just going to read it myself? It's like, listen, talk to somebody that, that believes this and read it with them. Get with them and read about it. Because I think the most important decision you can make in college is, is who Jesus is. Right? I think the most important question you can ask is, is Jesus who the Bible says he is? I know there's all these other questions you might have about culture and the Crusades and all this other stuff. Those are great questions. And I think scripture has great answers for it. And we'd love, to feel, we'd love to field some of those questions. But here's the thing. If you don't answer the most important question first, you're starting backwards. Because if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that the Bible claims he is, then that changes everything about your life. And if he's not, who cares about those other questions, right? And if that's you in this room, I want to kind of walk you through real quick before we continue this passage. i just give you a summary of what this says about Jesus, because I don't want you to leave this room without having an opportunity to hear the gospel. And this is it right here, that when you look at the beginning of this book, we see something that God created man to walk in relationship with him, that God created man in his image to walk in relationship with him. But Romans 3.23 tells us this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard of perfection, that he had a law and we broke it. Romans 6.23 tells us this, that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And Hebrews uh, 27, 9.27 says this, that, that just as it appointed for man to die, it is appointed for him to be judged. That's bad news. Because what that tells us is that God made us, he gave us a standard, we broke that standard, and in breaking that standard, uh, there's consequences waiting for us. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel, is that God was not satisfied for that ending for you. Because John 14, 6 tells us this, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says three exclusive statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he says, I am the way, what he is saying is, I am the way to reconciliation between me and the Father, me and God. When he says, I am the truth, he's saying that I am the truth to be known about who God is. When he says, I'm the life, he's like, I'm the life that you've been created for and looking for. Not a one, the one. That article is purposeful. It's not arbitrary. And John 5, 24 tells us this, that anyone who hears his words and believes in the one who sent him will not come into judgment, will cross over from death to life. Did you hear that? What did John 5, 24 tell us? Is that if we, those who hear the words of God and believes in Jesus, believes in his gospel, will not come under judgment. What's waiting for us in Hebrews 9, 27? Judgment. But crosses over from what? Death to life. What was Romans 6, 23? Death. What was John 14, 6? Life. It's by believing the gospel. Listen, if you memorize one verse, it's this one. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, is the gospel in the shortest, shortest form I could find. It said that we have delivered you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised. And that's what we believe as Christians. 
that not that we're good, that we're going to heaven, but because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done on the cross, dying in my place for, for the sins that I've committed, he lived a perfect life, that he was buried, and then he rose three days later, proving his divinity, proving his victory over sin and death, and now we can have life in his name. Because of, because of Romans 10, 9, 10, it's if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Some of you in this room have an intellectual agreement with what the gospel says, but you don't have a heart-level agreement with what the gospel says. And you need to find that. And it's all in his word right here. Abundance of riches. Cling to his word. Why? Because verse 16 and 17, the last two verses we're gonna look at, give us great reasons why. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible, listen, this is the first reason why you should listen. This is the first reason why you should read the Bible. The Bible is the words of God. It says, all scripture is inspired by God, but a more literal interpretation is all scripture is breathed out by God. Ernie, what in the world does that mean? It means this. The Bible does not merely contain the words of God or become the words of God under certain conditions. It is God's word, the expression of his person, his heart, his mind, his will. The Bible was scribed by humans. It was written by people, but it was God-breathed. It was God-breathed. He did not breathe it into the words that they have written. He breathed it out through them. God breathed it. God did it. God wrote it. It wasn't dictated. It wasn't like Paul's like, hold on, slow down. I'm trying to write 2 Timothy. No, no, no. God just worked in him and through him to produce it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 talks about this. Says, because no prophecy ever ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke using man as a tool to bring about revelation to human. The claim of the Bible, the claim of this book, is it's not just a good book. It's not just a good read on a day that's rainy. It's not just an encouragement. It's not chicken soup for the college student's whole, all right? What it is, is we're claiming it's the word of God. It's his words. And don't we take it for granted? I think we do. Let me give you some stats. These are crazy when I read these. I can't believe it. Did you know that 85% of households own a Bible in America? 85? That there is on average 4.5 Bibles in every house. And I know some of you are skewing that because you have like 30 of them. All right, you're throwing off the math. Okay. All right, why do you have so many? We have a lot too. But there's so many of them. I mean, it, the Bible is a Guinness Book record. It is the best-selling nonfiction book of all time. It's amazing how the, the Guinness Book's world record at least recognize the truth that's a nonfictional book, meaning it's factual. I'm gonna give you some kind of idea right here. The Bible has sold over five billion copies. Five billion with a B. Five billion copies with a B. The second book has a couple of hundred million. And it's some Chinese book that the Chinese government mandated that everyone should have to buy in their country. They cheated, all right? But they're still millions short. It's been translated into 3,000 languages. And because of technology, you can put it in your pocket. If you have that app, the YouVersion Bible app, it's been downloaded over 100 million times. It's everywhere. 
you think we take it for granted. Let me tell you another stat. What they found out is this, about half of Americans, around 46%, read no more than once or twice their Bible a year. An abundance of riches that we're walking on and around that we just need to dig into. So I can tell you this, a good reason to read your Bible is because what we see in culture is that the, first, the more we decline in reading it, the worse our culture gets. And that'd be a good reason, but that's not really the reason why we should read it. We should read it because the scripture tells us is that these are the breath of God. What a privilege. What an amazing opportunity. We can't not read it. We can't take it for granted because it is the words of God. Like, who here doesn't want to hear God speak? <coughs> really. I have so many people that come up to me, young adults, be like, I just want to hear God's will for my life. I just want to hear him speak. And I remember listening to this podcast, and they were talking about this single thing. They had all these theologians and pastors that I really respect, and they were asking a single, and trying to answer a single question. Does God audibly speak to us today? And a couple of guys spoke, and it sounded like pretty good stuff. And then one guy gets up and he says this, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. It's like drop the mic. That's the end of the conversation. Yeah, God speaks today. You want intimacy with God? You want to hear him speak? Let him talk to you. He's already speaking. The second reason we see that we should read the word of God is that the Bible will transform us from the inside out. Look at verses 16 and 16 and 17. It is profitable to, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training of righteousness and righteousness so that the man of God may com be complete and equipped for every good works. The Bible is many things. We can look at it and see the history of God working. We can see his master plan of salvation from beginning to end. We can see the character of God in it. But one thing that it definitely is, it, it is a guide to transformational life. When you see those, those words in 16, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, those are words of transformation. And when we interact with the word of God, it changes us. It should shift us. We should look more like God than we did the day before. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? Is a little Christ, a person that follows the example of Christ. For us, so many of us, the word is not transformational for you. And I just want to ask you a few questions because I don't think the issue is the power of this book or the, or, or the words of God. Because I think it's how we approach the word of God. I think it's how we approach it. The way we approach it really matters because there are people that know this word better than you, but it doesn't change their life. It doesn't transform their life. And so I have some questions I wanna ask you to think about how am I approaching the word of God? And here's the first one. Are you applying the word of God to you or yourself to the word? I'm gonna say it again like this. Are you applying the word to you or yourself to the word? The word when you apply something to yourself, it's something to be added to who you already are. It's to take it along. It's kind of like, okay, I like this. I don't like that. That's icky. Mm, I want this right here. Mm, not so much of that. Love grace, not so much conviction, all right? And some of us live in that way, right? We, like, we come here and we want to have a moment, this Hallmark moment. I don't know, you like Hallmark shows? I hope you don't. They're terrible, all right? Uh, my wife watches them sometimes. It's sad, all right? 
you're sad, you cry, but you're happy at the end, you feel better about life. And sometimes we wanna go to church and we wanna feel uplifted about that. We wanna look at the Bible and we wanna feel uplifted about that because what we want it to do is add to the trajectory of a life that we're already going into. We don't wanna be confronted by the word of God though, right? We want to add to our life. We don't wanna be transformed by it. See, when you like, hey, I wanna apply the word of God to my life, I wanna add it to it, but when I wanna apply my life to the word of God, it's like I wanna submit to it. It changes things and it brings up conversations to your life that are like, okay, this is a little bit not fun right now because it brings up things like conviction about things that, and when the Bible brings up conviction in our life, it's not to make you feel like a terrible person. What it actually is doing is telling you there's something in your life that's inconsistent with the way which God's calling you to live and that thing is actually holding you back from experiencing more joy. And removing that thing may be a little bit painful, but it's gonna be better if it's gone. How many of you hate getting splinters? Man, I hate getting splinters. I'm the biggest sissy when it comes to splinters, right? To give you an example, my little nephew got a splinter like this big in his foot, and he was like, just get it out of my foot. He was like squeezing it. I was like, dude, I can't even do it. Like, I'm afraid I'm gonna hurt you. He just took a knife and basically cut it out. And I'm like, whoa, Rambo. Like, that's, I don't roll like that. You know, I get a splinter in my foot. I'm like walking. I'm like, no, it'll work itself out. It'll work itself out. And what happens? If you get a big enough one, it just gets infected and it gets worse and it gets more of a mess. And that's what sin in our life is. Is it something that gets infected and gets worse and worse as we continually do it? And what the, what the, what the word of God brings about, what it brings about conviction in our life about what we're doing, because we read and go, oh, I'm not supposed to be sleeping with my girlfriend. I shouldn't be looking at porn. I shouldn't be doing these things. It's not because it's like, no, we don't want you to have fun. It's going, hey, this is poisonous. This is deadly for you. This is not gonna lead well for you. This is not gonna be good for you. And so like, what I wanna do is I wanna remove that thing for your life, but, but there's certain steps you're gonna have to take. It's gonna be hurt. It's gonna be like pulling that splinter out of your foot. It's gonna hurt for a little bit, but you're not gonna be walking like this for like forever. You know, they may have to lose your leg because it's got so infected, they've cut it off. There's so many areas like this. So here's the question. Are you applying the word of God to you? Or are you applying yourself to the word of God? Here's the second one. Are you seeking transformation of your situation or transformation of self? Like when you open the word of God, when you approach the word of God, is it a scratch my back, I scratch your back situation? You're like, I wanna be happy, I wanna be joyful. Lindsay's always happy. Let me read it, I'll do this, and then I'll, she'll bring me happiness. Or if I start doing this, maybe God, you'll give me favor, and I'll be able to keep my girl, you know, my girlfriend will still stay with me, or, or my boyfriend will still walk with me, or I'll do better in studies, or my parents will be more proud of me, or whatever that thing is. But you're looking for some bargain chain with God, that when you approach God, you're approaching the bargain with him, because I want this from you. It's not that you want God, it's not that you wanna be closer to him, it's like, I want this from you. And if that's you, you're gonna be really disappointed because God isn't just looking to transform your situation around you. He's looking to transform you. He wants to change you. And that transformation starts from the inside. That's what Paul's talking about in 16. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul's saying when we talk about profitable for teaching, it means teaching us how to understand God's truth. But the word of God, scriptures, is good for teaching us to understand what, God's, what is true, right? It, it's profitable for rebuking, meaning bringing conviction of our error when we stray from God's truth. So first, it's, it's for teaching. It tells us what is true. It tells us when we're not living in the truth. And in correction, is bringing about restoration to truth when we've been in error. So it tells us how to get back into the truth. And in training in righteousness, is guiding us to live in truth continuously. That's how it's instructing us. And when you read the word of God, 
When you allow it to teach you, to rebuke you, to correct you, to train you, it transforms you in the inside to something that's different than what you were before. And I think we struggle with this principle because when we go to the Word of God, we want it quick, easy, and fast. Like, God, where's the chapter about keeping my relationship together? I haven't found it. Song of Solomon. Oh, Lord, what does that mean right there? You know, we get caught up in all this kind of stuff. Like, what is that? Oh, my goodness. And we want these quick little boom, boom, boom. But you're really what the Word of God is doing in your life is it's shaping your innermost person. Right? Because the things that you're trying to address sometimes, you address in the wrong way. Like, I'm trying to address, oh, you have a porn addiction. You're like, I just gotta stop looking for it. I gotta stop looking at porn. But you have to realize, yes, you need to stop doing that. But also, there's a heart issue of why you're doing that. You're doing that because you're seeking intimacy and you're believing in a lie that intimacy is only gonna be found in that thing and you'll never have it. Why do you idolatrize your boyfriend? Why is he an idol in your life? It's because he's so amazing. I, I doubt it. All right? It's because, of, because, because there's something in you that's saying that Jesus isn't enough, that's not enough relational depth. If I had this plus Jesus, then I'd be good. And there's a lie in your heart that you're believing. See, the word of God isn't just dealing with your situation. It's not just dealing with the thing that's in your face, but it's dealing with the inner world's person. And as it deals with that, it changes your character, it changes who you are, and it changes you, and it changes your desires, and you chase after those things because you see they're for them for what they are. That porn doesn't bring about intimacy. That your boyfriend, no matter how cool he may be, he's never gonna be as good as Jesus. And he can't be primary in your life. Gives you perspective. Gives you understanding of what the truth is. It develops our character. Verse 17 says this, so that the man of God, because this inward change, by the way, it leads to an outward change. And verse 17 says it like this, so the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. We are inwardly changed. Why? That we would be mature. That word complete means to be mature and that we'd have everything we would need to do good works. When it says equipped, it means you have everything you need. If I've given you everything you need to do your homework, you're equipped. You have all the tools. You have everything you need to do the homework really well. And he's saying this is what it is, that we would, our inward change is to change us so that we would be mature and have everything we need to do good works. Now notice, guys, it starts from the inward out. We don't do good things in order to be Christians. Christianity has this crazy thing. We, don't, we, we do not do so that we can be. We do because we are. You understand what I'm saying? We don't do Christ-like things so that we can be Christians. We do Christ-like things because we are Christians. It's who we are. It's who we are and the essence of who we are. Listen to me, guys. It's like, why do football players wear pads and run around and play and, and, and practice and all stuff? It's because they're football players, okay? If I put a you and I jersey on and pads and run around campus doing up-downs and stuff like that, you're like, that's that weird old man. I saw him talk a couple of days ago. He's definitely not part of the football team. We can tell. Look at him, all right? He's old and slow. He's not on part of the team. Doesn't matter how much I put on the pads, it doesn't change my identity and who I am. I can act like it, but it doesn't change who I am because it's an inward out. And the but here's the thing, the natural response of being inwardly changed is outward change. And let me tell you why it's really good news. You don't have to fake it till you make it. 
You don't have to pretend like you got it all together, that you're doing all the things, and that you're awesome, and that you're super Christian in order to be a Christian. That's not what you need to do. You just need to build intimacy with Jesus through his word and allow him to transform your heart. And he will give you a heart for the loss. He will give you a desire for the things of God. He will give you perspective to see that all the things that you think are really important are not as important as what he has for your life. He will shape you and equip you for good works. You see that word, good works? We read that and we think about, oh, picking up trash, helping old ladies cross the street, joining a cause, putting an X on my hand to end it now. And those are all good things. But I think Paul's talking of something much greater. I think the good work he's talking about is this, is that as God inwardly works on our heart and inwardly changes us, it transforms us in such a way that it expresses in how we bring others, that God uses us in other people's life to see them inwardly changed and start a relationship with God in the kingdom. Did you catch that? That you don't save your friend, but God works through you from the overflowing joy of knowing Jesus and walking with him to work with him, not for him, and seeing others being worked on by God and their life and him using you. It's amazing. Guys, God's word is an abundance riches in your life. It's too important not to make time for. It's too vital to put off. Don't take it for granted because it's the words of God. And it will transform your life into this life that Jesus always talked about, this abundant life that he talked about in John. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to make much of you. Thank you so much that you have given us your word. And if we want to hear you speak, we just need to listen. God, thank you that it's not through some sacred thing that we have to do, some dance or ritual, that it's right here that you have given us access to see who you are and what you have done. And thank you that it's active in our lives. It transforms us. It changes us. God, I just ask for these men and women this semester, more than getting great grades or getting great internships or getting great jobs, is that they would intimately, they would begin to intimately walk with you. And it'd be found in the depth of their study of the word of God and their obedience to it. That it wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge, Lord, but that it would be something that so invigors them, so excites them, that it changes the way that they live. And God, that you would do a great work on you and I's campus. God, I am so overwhelmed by the lostness that I see there. I'm so overwhelmed by the amount of people that I see there day and night that are living in these big buildings, each in little rooms, and God, you care about every single one of them. And we should care about them too. God, thank you for the men and women that are in this room that didn't know how they figured out, didn't know how they got here. And God, I just ask you would meet them right where they're at and you would tease out within them a yearning for salvation 
a yearning for a relationship with you. God, I ask as we worship you in song that we would make much of you because, God, you're worthy of it. And it would come from the overflow and joy of knowing you that we just wouldn't be able to contain it. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen.